Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast, the original all-turkey, all-the-time podcast with your co-hosts Andy Galliano and Cameron Weddington. In our weekly podcast, we're going to bring you some wild turkey calling tips like this. From there, we're going to go into, she's aggravated, there's another hen that's challenged her, or she's challenging another hen, she's going to cut an excited yelp. Advice from old pro turkey hunters like this. The turkeys typically don't like, I think, more times than not, to travel in an easterly direction into the sun first thing in the morning, especially after he gets up. It's a blinding thing. It's just like you. It's hard for you to see into the sun. Mm -hmm. So if I have a choice, I'm going to try to make it so that I'm going to be on the west side in the morning east side in the afternoon of a turkey exciting live hunts like this teach you how to cook your bird with advice such as this with some fresh rosemary and garlic and then cool that off and spread that along the inside of that butterflied turkey breast that we've seasoned on both sides wildlife management tips for your property especially with turkeys like this if you look at the type of habitats that turkeys need for nesting and brooding that tends to be habitat that can be managed more successfully with growing season fire than with dormant season fire. And hopefully along the way, we'll get plenty of these. Well, on November the 28th of 1953, I was attached. When I popped out of my mom and the baby doctor spanked me on the bottom, I went, oh. and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> I like that. Thank you for tuning in, and now, for this week's show. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 471, Turkey Talk, and turkey biology, and turkey trapping, and turkey everything with Grant Woods, and I am your co-host. And the guy who is just now drying out from the weekend rains. And I'm your co-host and the guy who is humbled. Yeah. Well, I know that. That's just natural. But tell me why you're thinking that, especially Uh, today. Even more so today. So I have, I mean, I've never been a prideful person, but I've always thought I had some athletic capabilities in my body. And today... I took surfing lessons and realized I have no athleticism in any shape, form, or fashion when it comes to surfing. Hmm. That is some hard stuff. I've never even attempted it, so I have to go off of your word. It is very difficult for me. Meanwhile, my niece, who is like eight, I think, is flying past me on the surfboard. (laughs) Granted, 
little less weight, a little easier center, you know, balance there. But still, it, it is a humbling experience when you kind of think you're pretty athletic and then your eight-year-old niece is just rocking past you on a surfboard. Yeah. And you're yeah. doing a, a front handspring flip off the front of the board. <laughs> I can pretty much envision that it would go the same way for me just simply because I have a very high center of gravity. Yeah, I do too. And I think men are at a disadvantage, honestly, because our our center of gravity is more in the shoulders, whereas women is more in like the hip area. And so I would think on a surfboard, that's that's not where you want to be, where if you tip one way or the other, upper body-wise, you're gone. Yeah. So, you know, it's like the old science experiment where the girl can sit on her knees. If you push her from behind, she can catch herself easy, you know, with her without putting her hands in front of her. If you do it with a guy, he's going down. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. so it's been raining there. I, I wouldn't know. I'm I'm currently looking out at the ocean of, in Costa Rica. So Yes, you are. It has not and, rained here. <laughs> well, I'll say this. It was absolutely gorgeous today in Birmingham. And I'm hearing from quite a few people scattered all over the country that turkeys are gobbling. Yeah. So good. We, must, uh, we must not be the only ones enjoying some beautiful weather. Yeah. I know the Saturday before we left was one of the prettiest February days that I could remember. I mean, it was mm-hmm. just absolutely beautiful, but they'll all be gobbled out. So yep. might as well stick to the crappie this year, boys. They're already gobbling. It's going to be over before it starts. Yeah. So next week we'll be coming to you guys with some great crappie fishing tips. <laughs> tactics strategies and the hottest new crappy bait there you go i like it yes sir but this week we've got dr grant woods who we've had on the show several times and we cover a plethora of topics with him i feel like a lot of this show we focused on you know the average landowner who has his back 40 and that's it you know what can they be doing for turkeys yeah we had a lot of scenarios with that but great conversation grant's always super interesting backed by peer-reviewed data all the time you know research i think he's a great resource for us these days and i mean we personally use him for the management of one of our farms and it has gone great so far so the the turkey population is doing really well and and we've been very happy with how that's turned out having someone guide us on that because when we bought the farm you know, our first thought is, well, let's clear up some food plots and all this stuff. And anyway, it has worked out really good that when we bought it, we got saddled up with him from the get go so that yeah. we started taking the correct steps rather than doing a bunch of stuff that we would have to correct later on. Right. And anyway, it, I have not regretted it at all. It's It's been a really good thing for us. So we'll see how yeah. it goes uh, this spring up there. But thus far, it's been very good turkey hunting up there in the springs. Yeah. You know, he's well-educated, he's well-spoken, he is well-versed in the ways of management because he's done it all himself, and just to give you one more well, well, he's a heck of a nice guy to boot. So, And he'll make, be in Nashville, so if you guys are going to Nashville, which we will be there Friday and Saturday next week, then Grant will be there too, so if you hear something in this show that you want to go discuss with him, He's going to be there, so swing by and see him. I don't know the booth number or anything, but he'll be there. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well, what do you think? You want to jump in and rock and roll? Let's do it. See you guys on the other side.
Hey everybody, Cameron and I are excited to tell you we have on the phone with us today Dr. Grant Woods. And well, because Grant's been on this show three times already over the years, I'm sure most of you know Grant. And if you haven't heard him on this show, then you probably have seen one or 200 of his videos on YouTube where he has a channel growing deer tv or growing deer dot tv is the website but your your youtube channel is growing deer tv without the dot i'm i'm guessing i don't have it pulled up here in front of me we'll talk about that in just a minute but he is well somebody who if you're not familiar with with grant he's someone who i'll i'm just going to say put into practice everything that he's been teaching he put his own thoughts and what he had learned into action on his own farm years ago and learned a lot of things along the way that maybe he didn't learn in a book as well. So we're going to pick his brain some as we go through this today. And Grant, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come join us. You know, I know that you do your own videoing and you have all of that going on as well as running a business and running a farm and you're a busy man. So we appreciate even five minutes that you might give us, much less the six hours that you're going to spend with us on today's show. <laughs> well, I appreciate the opportunity, and I wish I'd have packed a lunch. I didn't know it was quite that long, but it's all good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness. So we were talking. I'm just going to jump right in and go, Cameron. Sorry. Good. But we were talking before the record button was hit on this about how cold it is for you you were outside most of the day today doing videos and you made mention, you know, that it, that this kind of weather's tough on critters. And so what I know, I know we're dealing with a lot of extremes, for example, and I, when I say extremes, I'm talking about really differences in what this weather has brought across the country. You're north and west of Cameron, but you got very little snow. Cameron got, I'm going to say what's usually an abnormal amount of snow for the part of the world that you're in, Cameron, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, five inches is pretty stout for here. That that's seldom happens. Yeah. So aside from that, because there is so much of a difference, you know, you got very little snow. We got very little snow in Birmingham. But what we are all experiencing right now are just frigid temperatures. And so it got me thinking. If I were a wild turkey, and especially a wild turkey poult, what kind of negative effects would this extremely cold weather have on me possibly? Mm, great question. You know, feathers are a great insulator, and you've seen it, maybe seen it right now on some in-person or trail camera videos or pictures. Those turkeys look a little puffier, right, because they're holding those feathers out and trapping a little bit of air in there to keep them warmer. It'd be like mm -hmm. us putting a big down coat on. So. It's not just the extreme cold. I think, you know, they can get that, but you got to have heat. You got to keep that metabolism cycle going, and that requires food. So, at this temperature, insects are almost totally non available. They're dead yeah. or under the ground or in a log or, you know, they're wherever that particular species of insects hangs out during the winter or these conditions in particular. And in Cameron's case, where it's under five inches of snow, Turkeys can crash through five inches, but that's not normal, right? So 
those yeah. food resources, maybe some leftover acorns or spilled grain and crop field or something like that is harder to come by. So it's a lack of food and turkeys aren't hibernators. They need to eat every day. They're not, you know, just sitting there slowing down the metabolism. So they need to eat every day. And I'd say the toughest part right now is lack of food or the amount of energy expended to get that food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially, you know, I would assume like your turkeys up in Maine or turkeys in, you know, Montana or somewhere like that. They're they're probably pretty accustomed to digging through snow and stuff. The ones around here probably kind of freak out a little bit. <laughs> Certainly a change for them. I think even those turkeys and you know out in Montana, they go to the river bottoms where the snow is usually not that deep. And I I remember when I was in grad school, so that's ancient. That's when there were turkeys everywhere, <laughs> and there was a really long, wicked snow in New York. And New York's always had great turkey populations. Had a really big one back then. And, and biologists were finding you know 100, 300 turkeys in roosting areas that had a big, long, extended cold spell, just long, you know, five foot deep snows literally, and and long periods of time and abnormal and it just killed a bunch of turkeys they just couldn't excuse me could not get enough food to survive uh. so normal conditions in montana or you know those those turkeys there now an osceola wouldn't make it right shorter legs shorter body they're not they're not built for scratching through deep snow mm. and i suspect probably have a little bit different feather structure not just coloration but ability to hold heat it does you no good to hold heat in south florida Um, Yeah. So I think these little differences, like as an example, there's maybe easier to visualize northern deer are a subspecies called Borealis, and they have a bigger body, and bigger bodies hold heat easier. Elephants, of course, have a huge body, and they have great big ears to dissipate that heat. Those ears are an elephant's radiator, and you see them fanning them, and it maybe knocks some insects away, but it's just getting airflow over the multitude of blood vessels in there and that's how they dissipate eat and wow. deer of course this is real obvious right now on our trail cameras certainly in my place deer can do what's called paleo erect they can stick hair up at will i think this is you know voluntary nerves but they can stick their hair out and of course that long winter hair stuck straight out can be three inches so it makes deer look really big or fat right now and we're doing that because that hair is so thick it traps a lot of air next to their body and that's an insulation layer and oh. then if they get warmer, they're laid that hair down flat. That's called erection. Turkeys, like I said, they kind of ball up. You see them on a, you know, a show camera when it's really cold. It looks like little butterballs walking around. Poults by this time are, you know, should have matured enough. They're they're about the size of an adult hen, and so they're, you know, if a hen can survive, the poult should be able to survive right now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Is the diet right now, you said, is mostly if, if they're in ag country, leftover corn, beans type thing? If they're in bottoms, are they still scratching, looking for acorns, I guess? Yeah, acorns. And there'd be some insects, larger insects that are just under the leaf layer. Uh, you know, people always say, as an example, well, all these cold winters will set the ticks back. And that's that's not true at all. Ticks mm-hmm. just go way under that leaf litter or, you know, a couple inches deep in the soil. Soil's a great insulator. So, you get down to soil, not many inches. We're not up in, again, not up in Canada where the frost is two foot deep or something. So here in Tennessee, you get down to soil a few inches, you're, you're warm enough to make it through the winter. Mm. What kills them or what's the real problem is if that top layer, we get ice. This is so damaging to turkeys. We get an ice layer or it snows and melts a little bit and then freezes real hard and crusts like ice. Mm-hmm. Then they have great difficulty scratching through there to get food. And, and that is... Much tougher, uh, you know, a half inch of ice is tougher than five inches of snow. Yeah, 
That yeah. makes perfect sense to me. So you're saying that Pulse really don't have any more to worry about right now than just your your adult turkeys. Adult hens for sure. Toms are a little bit bigger, but the way here's one thing I want to stress: don't you know? Don't get all panicky and say, "Well, I got turkeys out here. I gotta go help them. I'm gonna throw out 50 bags of corn, 50 pounds of corn, or maybe 50 bags in some cases." But yeah, <laughs> you're gonna kill a bunch of turkeys. They're not used to that diet and they're gonna you know it's gonna booger them up a little bit this is especially true with deer you know turkeys they have of course have the gizzard and it's a real real strong muscle some grit in there and they grind everything up deer of course we never feed deer we feed the bacteria in a deer's gut the bacteria in the gut breaks everything down and converts it to the food stuff or deer actually digest the bacteria as they go through the hind gut and so those bacteria populations, they rise and fall. Like summer, you can have a whole bunch of families of bacteria that are great at eating protein because that's what deer are focused on in summer. And now more carbohydrates or, you know, tougher conditions, those populations rise and fall. Well, if you're in an area, you're in a big timbered area, there's no corn around, hadn't been corn around, you go throughout a bunch of corn. This is well documented. This is not hearsay or one-time event. And a deer's stomach has not been used to corn and you give them a whole bunch of corn right now, they can either get really sick, it's called acidosis, burn a hole in their gut, so to speak, burn the, burn the lining off the gut, or literally go out in the timber 500 yards in that bait pile and die with a full belly of corn because they don't have the right bacteria in their gut to digest it. Hmm. It just sits there plugging them up. So we don't save critters by emergency feeding. We save critters by, in the non-winter, doing great habitat work so they are healthy and survive because there's always, right, there's always floods, there's always droughts, there's always these cold spells. There's there's always something. And if you manage your wildlife kind of right on the edge, low quality habitat, too many critters for the habitat, and it's, you know, 110 degrees in August for a month on end and no rain in sight, yeah, it's really hard on critters. So you got to manage for good habitat year round and keep the amount of critters in balance with that habitat's quality to, to provide food and cover for them. That's fascinating. And, you know, I don't know why I thought about this a week or so ago when I was deer hunting. But horses, we always, you know, I'm I'm not a horse guy. Cameron, I know, is a horse guy, and, and Grant, you may or may not be. But I know horses, you have to be very careful about what they're fed. Mm-hmm. You know, or it doesn't do them good to yep. feed them whatever, yep. whatever. I don't know what it's called. But I got to thinking, I said, you know, deer are just so, they seem to be so much better adapted. But what you're telling me essentially is that, they're really not any different. It's just the fact that they do have access to a diverse array of foods that they can eat throughout a year and even throughout a season. Most of the time, barring this, you know, a, a snowfall in an area where you don't normally get a snowfall. And so, you know, them eating a lot of one food because it's the only thing that's readily available for them without them having to work to get it could be a bad thing for them. That's that's interesting. Yeah, it's not really just the one food. It's it's one food they haven't been eating, so they don't have sufficient bacteria species in their gut to digest that high starch. We're talking yeah. corn or high starch foods. But deer and horses are quite a bit different. Horses are very very finicky. They founder. They get their you know they get their gut twisted. All these issues. And you got to remember they've been domesticated for hundreds and hundreds of years. Right. Wild free ranging deer are not near that finicky. They eat hundreds of different things. They're you know, they eat sticks and twigs. They'd rather have forbs, but they eat sticks and twigs. It's not that they don't have something to eat. 
it's always that quality quantity ratio that we're managing for. So uh, on, on timber country, I could, you know, solid close campy forest, we could probably have 50, 70 deer per square mile. They'd all be size of shepherd dog, but you know, we'd have them there. Yeah. Or we could grow Boone and Crockett deer in the mountains of Tennessee, but we'd probably run 10 or 12 deer per square mile. So there's enough groceries to go around. Mm-hmm. So it, there's a balance there and you can grow good sized deer. We have clients who grow great deer in South Florida every year, but they have to kill enormous number of hogs because they can be a competitor for acorns and other items and enormous number of deer. So there's enough groceries to go around. So it's not, there, there's never just one magic bullet. People get hung up on that because they're getting sold something or whatever. There's not a magic bullet. It's managing the conditions for the goals and objectives on that property or that area. And with turkeys, when you have these really extreme weather events, they're not as impacted by drought usually, but these really cold events, again, as long as the ground's not frozen and they can scratch leaf litter and the snow's not so deep that they can't scratch, I'm really not worried about mortality from the weather. What I am worried about is it stresses them enough that there may be a reduced clutch size this spring, or it makes it easier for predators to get to them because they're not quite as alert. They're so focused on feeding, and mm-hmm. you know they're a little bit malnourished. They're not, you know, they're not the top of their game. So there's there's all these ancillary things that come in when us, you know, if we're we're not quite on our game, we can pick up a cold a little bit easier, right? Our immune system is not quite what it needs to be. Right. And and if wildlife's not quite on their game, so to speak, it's easier for bad stuff to happen to them. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because you, so I've talked with you obviously several times in the past, and we actually have worked with you on one of our farms, which has been mm-hmm. fantastic. And one kind of point I felt like you made to me at one point was that food really isn't the limiting, the limiting factor for having turkeys in a lot lot of turkeys on your property because it seems like most people the first thing they do if they get a property is they want to put in food plots and all that stuff and if the main objective is turkeys that it doesn't seem like that should really be step one Mm -mm. yeah you're exactly right Cameron not turkeys eat you know little snakes and worms and multitudes of beagles and bugs and seed heads and green vegetation they have such a diverse diet that the limiting factor is almost always nesting and brooding habitat that's almost always not not always but almost always a high percentage of time the limiting factor and i know you i mean you've done a great job of trapping and hunting and doing what you can to balance that predator prey you know ratio which simply means both predators and preys are doing well you know if there's too many raccoons you get distemper or other diseases come in so Balancing that ratio is always good for all the critters, not just one species, all the critters. And I just call that good conservation, which is conservation is defined as the wise use of a resource. So if we don't balance predators or we have too many prey species or eating us out of house and home or whatever it is, that's not the wise use of a resource. And I find that when we do good conservation, almost all the species thrive. That's a good way to think about that. I've never... I must say, when I'm out there taking out raccoons, I'm not thinking that I'm helping the other raccoons, but <laughs> that, is, that is a good point. I mean, you definitely, I mean, you see it with deer populations that get overpopulated, you know, disease comes in or, or any kind of animal. That That's a great point. But, you know, the, the nesting and brooding, as far as turkeys are concerned, seems like that's it. You know, and basically, 
I got the impression that most people, including myself and whoever's managing land, that food plots are kill plots. You, you plant mm-hmm. there because you know it attracts them, and that's where you kill turkeys. It's not. It, it really shouldn't be viewed as, oh, I'm really, you know, helping populate turkeys by planting this patch of clover in here or whatever it is. Yeah, clover chufas are not. You know, they may help, and turkeys may utilize that, but. They're probably getting more protein out of that big beetle they scratched up under, you know, a stick or something in the timber. Uh, yeah. You know, if you think about Navy SEAL training or survivalist training, they teach you how valuable bugs are, even for human consumption. I, I've not got there yet. I'm not fit to be a Navy SEAL, and I can't eat the bugs, so I guess I'm never going to get there. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, turkeys do well on earthworms and beetles and crickets and all kinds of stuff like that. You know, you see it when there's a grasshopper infestation late in the summer sometime those turkeys just man they're just out there bobbing that head up and down chasing grasshoppers like crazy you may see them in the food plot but they're eating the grasshoppers so i'm not worried about turkey food except a a very rare rare situation but brooding and nesting cover that that which takes a particular management right it didn't just it rarely just happens or it's just a stage you know you just cut a bunch of timber let's say and Boy, about year two or three, it's pretty good nesting cover, and maybe year three, year four, it's good brooding cover. And then by year five, you're back to being a biological desert. So it it takes some intentional management in most cases to have really good nesting and brooding cover. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's just think of, I don't know what the average landowner has, you know, acreage-wise, but I feel like there's a lot of people out there that own... 20 50 100 acres you know and in the Mm -hmm. scheme of a turkey that's not a ton of land you know for the for a turkey's range they use a lot a lot of land yes yes you're you're not going to be able to year-round manage the flock on on 80 acres you know but what could somebody do on their farm i guess if they're they have less than 100 acres let's say of hardwoods and they want to help the turkey population in that area and potentially have decent spring, you know, be able to maybe take a gobbler off their farm in the spring for, for small landowners. I feel like that's a tough thing to do. I'm not sure. I mean, it is, it, you know, you're not going to control the flock like a guy that has, you know, thousands of acres, but I think you can, I have a lot of clients that have 40 acres that do a great job. 40 seem to be commonly sold. And huh. two things, man, you need to, you need, if you're on 40 acres, remember predators, raccoons, possums, whatever have big, home ranges. Mm-hmm. And especially if you've got a little drain or something, that's a predator highway. So if you're on 40 acres, let's just use a round number here, 40 acres. You need to wear out as many predators as you can, literally le- and legally, coon and possum, you know, and stuff like that. And because those are also roaming on neighboring properties where hens are trying to nest and they're probably yeah. not trapping. So I have buddies that, you know, kill unbelievable numbers of raccoons on 40 acres because it's got a little drain or a predator travel corridor going through their property. I mean, you know, they may kill 80 to 120 coons on 40 acres. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. those coons aren't resident there, but they're resident within, you know, what do you want to say, a mile square area? Well, those yeah. turkeys are likely to drift through as 40 acres also. So we want to improve nest success in that whole entire range. And if you're the only one trapping, no one else is trapping. You're going to wear out the predators because those predators are, you know, they're moving around too. And then yeah. second thing is I had 40 acres. I'd probably, and I'm a big turkey hunter. I would dedicate 10 acres of it to nesting brooding habitat. I would thin the trees, use prescribed fire, whatever the prescription is for that particular habitat type. Because if you think about what happens right before nesting and brooding season, breeding season, 
when yeah. is breeding season or that area? Well, that's around turkey hunting. So if you're surrounded by high-graded closed canopy pines and hardwoods, and you've got the best nesting habitat around, where do you think the toms are going to be? Mm-hmm. So I, I think, yeah. So I, I know a lot of guys with 40 acres that just outmanage their neighbors. Their neighbors got, you know, 150 acres. They're, you know, they're almost four times bigger, but they don't do anything. They just, you know, they get, they scratch out an acre food plot and call it good. And all of a sudden you got 10 acres of brooding nesting habitat. I know where those hens are going to be in springtime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's twofold, you know, on one part, you know, selfish, I guess, part, maybe if you call it that, it, it's going to help you have gobblers on your property to hunt in the spring. But you also are helping those turkeys in the area by having that 10 acres of nesting and brooding that wasn't there before. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I think, uh, this isn't, you know, you get some hate mail after this, but I think wildlife should be wild. I don't want them domesticated. So yeah. um, that's part of the love. And, you know, we get so excited when, you know, you can take anyone to a deer pen. And, you know, I like seeing deer, oh, you know, deer, whatever. You're driving down the road or you're, you know, you're you're not in Yellowstone, but you're just out in the backcountry and you see a big elk or mountain lion or turkey, you get real excited because you didn't expect to see it. That's yeah. the wild part of it. And so on 40 acres, you know, boy, you, you had a hen that had, you know, 10 or 12 poults and they survived. You'd removed a bunch of predators. You managed the habitat. And doggone it, six of them decided to go somewhere else. Well, when they mature as a two-year-old tom, they're probably going to be working your property as part of the neighborhood. So mm-hmm. I don't think that's selfish at all. Again, I think that's being a good conservationist, and you're leading by example in your neighborhood. Yeah. And I hope all the neighbors, I'm not trying to get to see, I wish all my neighbors trapped. I wish all my neighbors had good brooding habitat, nesting habitat. That way there'd be way more turkeys in the neighborhood, and we'd all have great hunting. Yeah. 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 So in using your your example of 40 acres and and having 10 acres dedicated to nesting and brooding habitat, is that also is that ratio also going to apply if someone has 400 acres? Would they have 100 acres? I mean, no, not 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 necessarily. I don't like making cover for deer or turkeys brooding nesting habitat much less than five or 10 acres. You know, you make a one acre nesting habitat. Well, I call that a predator food plot because any right. coon, possum, fox, <laughs> coyote going downwind is going to smell every nest in there. Yeah. And, you know, and I have some argument with that, but I can take my lab, my wife's lab, let me get this correct here, <laughs> which isn't all that sharp, and throw a tennis ball just as far as I can throw it in the middle of that one acre, maybe all the way across that. It's only 200 feet, and she'll find it. Well, mm. that dog's getting, you know, a puppy chow every morning or every night, getting taken to the vet. You think about a coon out there. That if it doesn't kill, it dies. Mm-hmm. It's a very sophisticated hunter. Oh yeah. So you make a one acre or even ten acre, but real long and skinny. Like I can remember, in all the rage was SMZ streamside management zones. Oh, we're gonna save the planet. We're not gonna cut the trees all the way to the creek. We're gonna let the wildlife have this twenty yards. Mm-hmm. Well, those ended up being incredible, incredible predator food plots. And yeah. this was documented by a researcher at Mississippi State because. All the hens are going there because it's the best nesting cover around, and they were getting slaughtered. Mm. Yeah. So I like big old square or circular cover areas. I mean, like at Cameron's area on women's property, you know, our original plan was take the whole dog on ridge side. It's tougher to hunt. We're putting food plots or clearings for strut zones or whatever on top, and take that whole ridge size, thin the pines, put a fire through there, and let that be nesting and brooding habitat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're. I feel like our property 
that you're helping us manage specifically for turkeys. I mean, I feel like the smallest nesting and brooding habitat size block we have would, would be 12, 15 acres. Yes. yes. And, and they're in shapes, mostly rectangular, I would say. Not narrow mm-hmm. and skinny, but mostly rectangular. And that's just kind of how it laid out with those ridges. Is there any benefit? This is a question I wanted to ask you. As far as, you know, as a deer hunter, I'm sure you're well aware how scent travels. Is there any benefit to putting your nesting and brooding on ridge tops compared to bottoms? I think the real secret is, you know, thick enough that that scent's getting up and over. So they're not honing in right on that, you know, right on that nest site. And Mm -hmm. big areas, big areas. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some guys out there promoting, you know, fall, fall two trees every acre, fall three trees every acre for cover. Man, you talk about, you know, if I had the skills of a raccoon, I said, well, I could hunt this whole acre or I can go to three 10-foot spots. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to feel the snot out of everything in those three 10-foot spots. Yeah. You're going to eat a lot of eggs. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to be fat. I'm going to be a fat coon. So, yeah. So, I think just volume if we think about, you know, when you, I often go back to the early explorers, I've learned that we just can't beat creation. We can't beat what was here before we started changing the habitat. And Daniel Boone talks about in his journal, his biography, he literally talks about hearing a gobbler every single day for a year, summer, winter, and just seeing thousands upon thousands of turkeys all across Kentucky. Yeah. And Kentucky didn't have hardly any closed canopy forests. It was all a big old savanna or you know, an occasional tree and grassland, occasional tree and grassland. There was just so much nesting and brooding habitat because that's the limiting factor for turkeys. So much of it, or and not just them, of course, Lewis and Clark, or where I live, the early explorer was a guy named Schoolcroft. He was looking for lead mines, and he was in this part of Missouri looking for lead mines when there were little trapping camps. There weren't little cities or anything, just, you know, some trapping camps on little creeks around here. And he kept a journal like Lewis and Clark. It's not that well known. You can buy it on Amazon. And man, he talks about turkeys in uncountable flocks. And then my grandmother, who's passed now, she would be a hundred and some odd years old now. Uh, her family was from the mountains of Arkansas. Tough, tough people. They basically lived on turkeys. My, you know, her her dad, my great grandfather, uh, had an le- old lever action. I don't know what it was. Twenty two, thirty, thirty. And they get hungry. She'd talk about going with him, and he'd shoot him out of these real tall pine trees, and it's her job to pick him up. And he was just, you know, he was he was he was roost shooting. Don't make any mistake about it. They were trying to eat. Right. You know, these were very poor people, and they had too much pride to take any assistance, so they'd go eat off the land. And so they would shoot him right off the roof. She, when she was telling about it, she had no idea that it was illegal. You know, she was wondering why I didn't do it. How come you don't hunt like that? <laughs> you know, it's just that was just how she was raised. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So when there's good habitat, really good habitat. And then another amazing thing, I don't think a lot of people, if you know, unfortunately a lot of people don't read anymore. If you read these early journals, they almost never talk about raccoons. And it turns out that that open savanna habitat is horrible habitat for raccoons. So we have, hmm. for the most part, poopy habitat for turkeys and great habitat for predators. Right. Wow. That's a... Yeah. That's really interesting. I don't know, Grant, if you or Andy, if y'all have read uh, it's a journal called Canadian River Hunt, which is a, a turkey hunting journal back in the 1860s. Basically, a bunch mm. of Civil War generals, it sounded like, got together and went on this big turkey hunt. And it, just like you said, Grant, they're out in like Oklahoma and 
literally flocks of thousands, thousands of turkeys. And I, I think they killed like 79, you know, in a couple of days or something. <laughs> Well, and but, the Canadian River doesn't have a lot of trees around it. Everyone thinks trees are the limiting factor for turkeys, but they just need a few trees to roost in. Yeah. yeah. Trees are not the limiting factor in the southeast. <laughs> no, they're not the limiting factor there, that's for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I guess in one sense, not, not in a roosting sense. They may be limiting us because they are closing the canopy and not letting anything grow below them. <laughs> That's true. Uh, we should, I guess we should have said a lack of trees is not the limiting factor. Yeah, so yeah. as y'all yeah. probably know, I mean, the pine, pine market's horrible. We have all kind of landlords we're helping now that literally are begging to give timber away. Your logger listening, I have clients in Mississippi and Alabama begging to give pretty nice quality pines. If I have a client just south of Memphis, I've talked to you before about it. He has pole quality timber. I mean, you know, telephone pole quality timber. 800 acres, beautiful stuff. We cannot get a logger. He's willing to pay the travel fees. We cannot give it away because a lot of pine mills are shutting down. Well, his habitat is horrible, horrible, because we cannot feasibly open up that canopy. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty crazy. Um, I wonder how that's going to go. I had heard from a guy I know who cuts a lot of pine in southern Mississippi that a lot of their trees have died, actually, from... I think this drought and some kind of beetles. It, it yeah, like pine beetles. Thousands. Yeah, pine beetles are bad. It's been known for decades, and, and, it, and of course, a drought stresses the tree, right? And then overcrowding stresses the tree. And what do insects or diseases attack? They attack the weak ones for the most part. So you get pine trees that are stressed out during the drought and they're overcrowded. They can't, you know, trees eat by photosynthesis. So what happens when they're overcrowded, they have real small crowns. You can tell that the limbs are growing up, starving for the sun, so they're growing out. That tree literally can't make any food unless it photosynthesizes. And if it has a little bitty crown, it's not making groceries. And so that tree is weak. It may be tall, but skinny, and it's weak. And it's easy for these insects or pests to get in through there and damage the tree. Yeah. Yeah. What would well, you, What I mean, we've heard that nesting and brood rearing habitat is is what is a limiting factor across much of the southeast what would you say is kind of that ideal ratio you you said you wouldn't necessarily expand that out to say you know a fourth of 400 acres but you would definitely make it that way you know a fourth of 40 acres so is I think, that I think it depends on the landlord's objective. So if you're Cameron, he probably wants about eighty nine percent of his property nesting and brooding habitat. Okay. Because turkeys are gonna feed in there too. You know, you you're hiding poats and providing high quality food, which is soft insects, ants, spiders, stuff like that for those poults. Nesting habitat, of course, is what we call umbrella habitat, just barely tall enough to hide the hen when she's sitting on nest, but if she stands up, sticks her head up, she can periscope or look around for predators. But underneath is open, so when those eggs hatch, those little bitty poles, itty bitty little things with little bitty short legs can walk. If you know if they're born in a, a thick cattle pasture or fescue field or something like that, those little poles, they're dead. They can't navigate that really tall, thick grass to get out of it. They're just as dead if you clubbed them in the head. So yeah. bare ground, bare ground underneath an umbrella habitat is ideal for that. And, and and again, not little narrow strips of it, big enough that the predator's not hunting the whole thing just by walking down the window. So if, yeah. you know, like 
Cameron just shared about those great explorers or the Civil War guys out there on the Canadian River in Oklahoma. Well, that was a big grasslands. That was probably 99% nesting and brooding habitat. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, that was, that was how they were hunting. Like you said, your grandmother, same way. I mean, they would find the cottonwood trees, a grove of them, and hunt the roost that night. You know, they would hang out all day and play cards. And then when it started getting dark, they'd go hunt the roost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess with there being a lack of nesting and brood rearing habitat across the landscape as a whole, the more that you have, the better off the birds are going to be within that larger area, you know, that that greater area. Since if your neighbors don't have it, they're better off because you do have it. Absolutely. Those toms are going to roam. They're going to roam. They're going to start sorting out that dominance, start that cycle about November, peaks up in you know, about February or so. You know, you, everyone hears those just tons of turkey calls and big flocks just talking all day long in February. That's sorting out dominance. And if we think about maybe a good parallel or an illustration is if you've been to one of the, you know, the big fancy quail plantations down in Tallahassee or down in South Georgia, well, they don't have little quail strips. They manage that whole thing for quail, stem to stern. Right. And and they have super population. Some of them average a cubby flush. These are wild birds now, not release birds. They average a cubby flush every seven and a half minutes. You don't dare think about going after a single. And you try to only shoot cocks on the rise. They don't want you shooting hens on the rise. So, you know, that's intensive management. And But you're shooting, you know, at a new cubby every seven and a half minutes. I can barely walk cubby to cubby every seven and a half minutes. But just tremendously <laughs> dense quail populations because they manage specifically for that habitat. So depending on how many turkeys you want and how high turkeys are up on your priority list is going to depend on what percent of your property you're managing in brooding and nesting habitat. Gotcha. Yeah. So back to the 40 acre example. So we put 10 acres that we're saying nesting and brooding. This is the focus. Are you doing like five acres nesting, five acres brooding, or would you say those are synonymous like that that this area is, can be used for both uh some both but you know i would probably burn that nesting habitat depending on where you are and rain and all these variables every time i say something people want to you know pigeonhole me into that one number but let's call it <laughs> nesting habitat where you're burning every two to three four years and brooding uh-huh. habitat maybe you're burning every you know three four five years so again depending on where you are and the vegetation and all this stuff so Slightly different burn rotations because both of them are going to be early succession vegetation, forbs and grasses, not saplings. Okay. So you got to burn frequently enough to keep the saplings out there at a minimum. And mm-hmm. given the fact that they're the same, you're looking for the same vegetation, you're burning the same time of year for both of those, I, is that correct? Well, I actually like, I like to rotate my burns. It, you know, it's well known that if you burn dormant season now till spring green up, you're more likely to get grasses back than forbs. And forbs hold more insects, therefore typically better for turkeys, especially uh, brooding habitat when those poults are feeding. Grass can make great nesting habitat if it is native grasses or clump grass. You got clump of blue stem or whatever native grass you want, and then bare ground. Clump of blue stem, bare ground. Pasture grasses like fescue, bluegrass, behay, all those, they make a thick carpet. There isn't that bare ground for the poach to walk around on. So, you know, I guess if I had an ideal world, I'd have nesting habitat adjacent to brooding habitat. That hen doesn't have to go very far. She shouldn't have to move those poaches very far to go from one to the other, and she's in cover the whole time. 
if you have nesting habitat on one side of a 30-acre pasture and brooding on the other, and Dr. Craig Harper has shown this, a lot of those poultry are going to be killed when the hen goes from one place to the other. Yeah. So a checkerboard effect is best, and that's what they do with quail. These have a checkerboard effect going on. They're never far from what they need. Yeah. Yeah. So if you you have 40 acres, you maybe five acres are burning every year, five acres are rotating every two to three years, and you want those right by each other. Yeah, or, or two, three, and four, and four, five, and six. I mean, it's going to depend on the species you're managing and where you are, but some rotation like that. And on my yeah. brooding habitat, I prefer growing season burns. So that brings us to I don't want to just have one five-acre block or 10 or whatever. I want to have multiple so I'm not burning one when I still have poults out there. Yeah. I don't want to only have one brooding place and then I burn it in June and, you know, took it away for the whole year. I want to have multiple. If the land allows, I want to have multiple. Like at my place, I try and it doesn't work out depending on the year and the conditions. But, you know, if I burn spot A, a dormant season, the next rotation, two, three, four years later, I try to do a growing season fire. I try to vary as much as I can because when you vary the timing of burns, you get different vegetation species responding. And diversity is always better for wildlife than a monoculture. A monoculture of all switchgrass is horrible turkey habitat. It's just too thick. And again, there's limited insects in all grass fields. Broadleafs tend to always have a higher diversity and higher numbers of insects. So broadleafs being forbs or what we annual broadleaf plants, you know, pokeweed, ragweed, desmodium, partridge pea, sticker briar, all that stuff, that whatever common name you're using. Sunflowers, yeah. wild sunflowers. Is there any case in which you could, let's just say, someone is a big deer hunter, definitely not me, but somebody out there probably is, and they want to have a food plot for deer. Is there a way to make that plot also usable for brooding habitat? I, I mean, you could have a winter kill plot. You know, you got oats and wheat and clover, something like that. And, you know, the clover's not very thick. And then come springtime, you just, you know, now the wheat notes and cereal rye are two, three, four feet tall. Uh-huh. And the clover's not too thick below that. And you don't, you don't replant it in the summer. Then, yeah, that could serve as a fine. As long as it's big enough, you know, four, five, six yep. acres, that could be great brooding habitat. Yeah. I feel like you have a lot of people who don't want to sacrifice their open area they have on their property, you know, because they want to use it for killing deer over in the winter. So, And I think but, that's great, but I would encourage those people to kill some trees. <laughs> your best brooding habitat is going to be in those savanna areas where you, you, know, you leave your best trees and kill either by harvest or hack and squirt or whatever the other way. Yeah. Interesting. I'd heard that as far as wild turkey poults go that the first two weeks of a, of a turkey's life, they have a difficult time regulating their, their body temperature. And that we, by not having good brood rearing habitat close by our nesting habitat, a lot of times not only are they struggling just to walk across that matted field that's matted with grass and everything else, and they're an easy target for all sorts of predators, especially the avian predators, but they get out in the sun and that it literally is cooking them and that that brood habitat needs to have, like you were saying, that umbrella at a, enough of a height to where they have some shade and it also gives them some protection from the avian predators as well. Is that 
Good. Yeah, I think. I mean, you know, again, depends on the year. I don't. I don't think they're worried about cooking them in Maine or Vermont. But yeah, it depends on where you are and what's going on. But umbrella. The, the bottom line is, good habitat always produces good results. So umbrella habitat, I would say, is critical for wild turkeys. Okay. Yeah. All right. It's just. It's just, it's almost like human health. You know, if we ate a really good balanced diet and we get ample exercise, we don't need any supplements. We're not gaining much from supplements. That's 99% marketing. And there's a gazillion supplements for wildlife too. And and none of them are make, move the needle in a practical sense if you have good habitat. Mm-hmm. There's there's no yeah. There's nothing that outcompetes diverse, really high quality habitat, but we all want the quick fix. We want to go, you know, buy the twenty nine ninety nine, whatever it is, and there's a picture of a giant buck or a big strutter on the front of it and we put three of those on our property and all the all the you know, the evil is solved and that's just not the case at all. Those bags that have the big strutter on them, that that is not good for the trustees. <laughs> Only only bag with the big strutter I like to see is the bag on the back of my turkey vest when I'm walking out the timber. That's the one I'm worried about having a big strutter in or on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, All right. <laughs> what we were talking about where I was going is, especially guys my age, we're all a little spoiled because farmers had big old, big old giant weedy pastures and fence rows. And in hindsight, we had pretty doggone good wildlife habitat, great quail habitat. No. When I was a yeah. kid, no one managed for quail. They were just a god, you know, it was just a god thing. They were there. They were everywhere. Well, in hindsight, herbicides weren't prominent. Weeds were everywhere. Weeds were making seeds for quail or providing that umbrella habitat. And and this is so easy to document. You know, Sam Walton, the guy that founded and, you know, grew Walmart big, was a huge quail hunter. And he moved from up by Columbia, Missouri to down at Bentonville, Arkansas, because quail hunting was so much better. There, wow. I doubt there's one quail in that county now. Not one. <laughs> wow. Literally. And it wasn't because Sam shot them all. It's because that went from weedy, nasty stuff. It's just a lot of development, of course, but or fescue pasture. There's no quail habitat. And people aren't burning the wood like they used to. I mean, people my age remember when your dad went out and lit a fire and then went back and ate supper. There was no putting the fire out. And if they burned on the neighbors, they're like, oh, thank you, man. Oh, gosh, glad I didn't have to burn that this year. <laughs> and you know that that uh, literally literally well that's a massive liability i don't recommend doing that i did not say do that please don't say i did that but you know we don't have near the fire we used to have and we don't have near the quail habitat and everyone's all turkeys are eating them up or you know whatever whatever well folks it always starts with habitat and i think the sam Walton story and i know he would approve if he was alive because he was such such you know a a giant quail hunter uh, that he would approve and know that the quail in the areas where there used to be some of the best hunting in the world no longer exist. Yeah. Mm. Another thing a lot of people don't know is, of course, I don't know if you've been to the King Ranch, know much about the King Ranch. It's Texas brush country, about 825,000 contiguous acres. And everyone hears about the King Ranch because they kill a bunch of big deer. And I don't know this today, but the last time I worked there and knew much about it, they were making about 10 times the money off quail that they did on deer. Wow. Wow. They didn't didn't manage for quail. It was just great native habitat. Wow. That's amazing. Jeez. That is is something. Yeah, I'm sure they probably also do a little turkey hunting as well. They do in the Oakmonts and stuff. It's a lot of big brush country. I mean, so the habitat's changed so much. Here's another thing. I mean, mesquite, right? You guys probably been South Texas. 
places in Oklahoma, all that, where the mesquite yeah. is, there was no mesquite there 150 years ago. Hear me clearly, no mesquite there. That mesquite come up in a cattle's be- belly when they started the cattle drives to Kansas to put them on a train, and they were pooping them out, and that's how mesquite started. It was in Mexico, but it was not down there. South Texas was a massive grasslands. Wow. I mean, there, you know, we know this. Yeah, I mean, this is well documented. This is not theory. This is well, well documented. Yeah. So think about massive, massive habitat change. Well, of course, that's going to impact the wildlife. Mm-hmm. Some for the better, some for the better, some for the worse. Yeah. Wow. You know, that's we, crazy. Never heard that for sure. Yeah, it is. We had had we had you on a couple of years ago, and you were you you had brought up neonics and wild turkeys mm-hmm. and the possibility mm-hmm. that that neonics were affecting wild turkeys, you know, causing them to causing a, a die off or kill off. Has there or, been or lack of recruitment and stuff like that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Has there been any study that has been done on that to offer any kind of uh, more definitive yeah lots and lots of studies on songbirds and it's nasty like they thought it would be now published scientific publications couple of them on deer causes reduced reproduction rates in deer and a shorter lower jaw i don't know why that is i understand the chemistry and physiology but if your teeth don't line up or your bottom incisors don't line up with the palate on top you can't tear vegetation off and therefore you don't gain body weight like you should so yeah Neonics wow. are very bad. There is published research for sure on deer. Lots of work. It's banned in Europe and a lot of countries like that. Not just because they're, you know, whatever term you want to use, greener or more liberal or whatever, because it's proven very bad. It, it's proven. Why American farmers still use it. And what's really amazing is now, because uh, I guess those chemical companies knew this was coming, there are better insecticides that don't have those side effects to use, but because that brand has been so, you know, common brands are Cruiser and stuff like that. So well-known among farmers, they just keep using it, which is amazing to me because the first line by federal law on that label is danger. How many times do you see a farmer wearing a respirator after filling up the seed bin? I've never have. Yeah. <laughs> never uh, have. Not one time. Never. Yeah. 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 So come on, folks. No. That stuff leaches into our water and everything, too. I mean... Everywhere, you know, yeah, we're drinking. There was some recent research out of Iowa. They tested 300 farm wells, 300 just, you know, random farm wells statewide. What do you think the percent was that had glyphosate in it? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think think that definitely, I've read a couple of the studies on songbirds and it's not that like they take a bite of seed and they keel over dead right there you know poisoned Mm -hmm. type Mm -hmm. thing they're just weakened and their reproductive capabilities go down which yeah seems to be a big issue with turkeys (laughs) well anything right so you're in the investment business if your clients are used to you say the average turkey clutch is 10 for round numbers yeah and it drops to five if your average investor is used to getting a 10 percent return and it drops to 5% for several years in a row, they're probably going to find another investment counselor. Yeah. And, and, and so hunters don't understand that when recruitment rates drop to less than one in some states, Missouri's had some years where less than one. Well, our population is going backwards. We're not even replacing the amount of turkeys that were on the landscape. Yeah, not even close. No, so recruitment, same in deer. 
recruitment is everything, everything, everything. Yeah, this is good stuff. Turkeys only lived so long. You know, you had the greatest habitat in the world. You removed all the predators on that habitat, but you had no recruitment or very limited recruitment, sub-replacement rate. No matter how great that habitat is, that turkey population is going to start decreasing because you're not, they only live so long and you're not replacing them. So yeah. now you take, we're losing X percent to neonics, you know, a decrease in reproduction and hawks or federal birds, as they're called, you know, all these, you know, totally controlled predator species, which is, you know, whatever it is. And record numbers of coons in most states, record number of opossums in most states, declining habitat. We got to be silly to think turkey populations are going to thrive. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like, well, duh, they're not doing great. <laughs> yeah. But the great hope is individual landowners that are doing a great job, you know, maybe they're not using neonics or taking some predators off. They're working on habitat. And you're one of them. But I mean, I know I work with a bunch of them and they have awesome turkey hunting. It's like back in the 1970s and 80s. You know, it's awesome. Yeah. You mess up one gobbler and there's four more goblin on next ridge over. Yeah. And then, you know, if you have that landowner, the hope would be that maybe they're helping all their neighbors, too. You know, like we talked about earlier and get enough landowners doing that around the state and, you know they're kind of propping everything up <laughs> and you guys are helping people by providing you know high quality free information all the time and so i think our best marketing is success so we get cooperators landowners to do a good job and you know we all want to hide it like we, no one wants to tell where your favorite mushroom patch is or your crappie hoe or your turkey hunting place but those landowners that will share their successes, not in a boastful way, but, you know, I burned X percent of my property this year and I've thinned some trees and I've removed some predators. You know, I'm not saying, you know, here's Onyx, come hunt here, but just tell that general story. And you get enough of those stories, people start saying, well, man, that's working. You know, that that's really working. Yeah. I don't know what they're talking about on so-and-so show, but this is working. I can see the results. I see all these truck camera pictures. I see the pictures of poults in the spring because harvest pictures i mean they're cool but what really gets me excited is all those pictures of poults running around yeah yeah no doubt no doubt that's and that's what you do so guys if who are listening if you're not aware of grant's channel growing deer tv he does a lot of turkey stuff on there too and and predator management deer i mean it's a lot more than deer it's land management so yeah we highly we have 60 traps out I'm sorry, I got a little delay in my phone. We have 60 traps out right now on 900 acres. Our goal on 900 acres is to remove a minimum of 100 nest predators every year. And we're 50 plus yeah. into it with a couple of months of trapping season left. So, you know, I think we will exceed our goal this year, which is we never get enough, right? Because we're knocking down through the nesting season, part of the brooding season, but predators are very territorial. So when those young of the year come off, those males got to go find a new territory. So next year, mm -hmm. by fall, they're scat all over the roads again, and we got to start over. Yep, it's an annual deal. It is an annual deal. You're doing a great job, too. I know a lot of people are doing a great job. And as those stories yeah. get told more, like I said, I got a buddy has got 40 acres kind of surrounded on three sides by national forest, big chunks of national forest. And he is just, I mean, if it's legal, he's doing it against predators. I mean, he's just wearing them out. It is shocking the number he catches off 40 acres. And he has awesome wow. turkey hunting. There's another factor, if I could, that we haven't talked about. So deer, turkeys, they all try to avoid danger. We know that. You know that as a hunter because 
you know, you got your old raspy box call and you shoot over two or three toms after a while, even though you're calling the same, they don't respond to that box call, right? They learn that. Research has shown that clearly. Gobbling goes down the first two days after season opens in most states. So we know unequivocally that turkeys can learn. Well, they also learn the other way. Man, when I'm on this property, I never have to dodge a bobcat, a raccoon, or my (laughs) my frequency of dodging these things is less. Well, this was done a long time ago, researched by University of Georgia. They took a very large property, big quail property, actually, and built four 80-acre coyote coyote exclusion fences, which means they buried the web wire a foot and a half deep in the ground or so. I can't remember the number, something like that, and four feet tall, and then trapped inside there to make sure they had them all out of this 80 acres. And then had a bunch of radio collared does in the area and come fawning season. I don't remember the number, but the vast majority of those does fawned inside of the 80 acres. Deer don't live on 80 acres, but they sense, clearly they sense, that that area was a safer place to fawn. Wow. So this That's is published research, and I think we, we know we have a bunch of hens on our place in the spring. I think it's because. None of my neighbors are really trapping much, and we've been wearing out our little trails, running traps all over the place. And, you know, I'm sure it feels safer to a turkey. Yeah. I mean, makes common sense to me. If I was being attacked constantly on one place and had a nice stroll through the woods on the other one, I'd probably be more likely to hang out on the other one. <laughs> I mean, you know, like when I drive through Chicago, I kind of take a, you know, a little breath and, and not maybe quite as alert when I get to the farm fields on the other side, right? I mean, it's just, this yeah. is just the way most creatures behave. Or I have witnessed, I do a lot of work with deer, I have witnessed deer walk off of a hunted property onto a state park where there's no hunting and visually let their guard down. They had learned that they're never under pressure. Now, state parks usually have no food and they're, you know, browse the snot out of, but it can be a real safe haven for them to hang out. Yeah. Good looking ground. That, uh, that is a fascinating point, too. I mean, that's back to the, you know, small landowner wants to have turkey hunting success. You get rid of the predators, your your property might be where they want to hang out more. Yeah, and hunt it smartly. You know, don't be yelping every two steps when you walk around your 40 acres. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and with, I mean, it seemed like with you, talking with you, as far as like entering onto your property it seems like i don't know if this is accurate so correct me if i'm wrong but it seems like animals are less likely to be fearful of side by sides and vehicles than they are you walking around absolutely yeah i mean unless you're shooting out your side by side all the time absolutely we if <laughs> so I in alabama park, they're probably scared of side by sides but <laughs> they are <laughs> yeah i mean so i think maybe a better way to phrase that is deer all wildlife, deer, humans, quail, whatever, we become conditioned to things that are safe or things that alarm us. Golfers on a golf course almost never alarm a deer. As a matter of fact, they're trying to shoo them out of the way so they don't hit them with the golf ball. We all know it's true. Deer in city parks seem to be more active at daytime than nighttime because probably a bunch of bad stuff going on out in that city park at nighttime. Um, so, um, where mountain lions are very aggressively hunting, deer tend to be a little bit more active during daytime because mountain lions hunt dawn and dusk and at night. So critters can adapt pretty quickly to pressure and survival. They do what they need to survive. Uh, so we work on our property all the time, you know, checking traps, moving stands, checking food plots, planting food plots, doing prescribed fire, whatever it is. There's a buggy on our place, I'm going to say six days out a week, year round. 
And, mm-hmm. and so they're just so, and we're never shooting out of it or, you know, we stop and look at critters, but we're not threatening them. They, they could care less about a buggy going down the road. Yeah. So I want to get as close to the stand because when I'm walking there, I'm leaving my scent everywhere I go all the way. And it's blowing across me and a walking sounds totally different than a buggy rolling through. So at my place, deer do not associate a buggy with danger. We don't associate an airplane with danger. Most of us don't. But if you're in Somalia right now or one of those countries or Israel or Gaza, you hear a plane flying low and fast over, you're probably running for cover. Very true. Yeah, that's true. a that's a great point. Well, I got to say that this conversation has been awesome. I just feel like the stuff you say is research backed by research. And when you say it, it just in my mind is like that makes so much sense. You know, it's it's common sense almost once you hear it. But it's things you don't really think about. So I really appreciate you hopping on here with us and what you do with Growing Deer. And I really appreciate you taking time to hop on this podcast and talk to our listeners about how they can maybe manage their back 40. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be y'all's guests, both of y'all. And I hope y'all have a great turkey season coming up. Hope it's a little bit warmer than it is now. I have trouble sitting <laughs> still when it's, I might be yelping all the time just because I'm shaking the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Keep it warm. <laughs> Totally understand that. And just in case the one person that listens to our show does not know where to find you, can you give them yeah. your information? Yeah. Yes, I want to get in touch Thanks for that. Yeah, I think if you go to any you know, platforms, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, just search on Growing Deer and you'll find us. That's the easiest way. Just search on Growing Deer and you'll find us. Excellent. Very good. Awesome. Thank you, Grant. Grant. Yes. Thank Thanks, you very guys. much. Take care. You did the same. Good luck to you this season as well. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Right. Goodbye. I don't know. I think we could talk to him every single week on this show and still be putting very, very useful wild turkey knowledge nuggets in our back pocket to use for future purposes. Yeah, and management. I mean, just everything. It just, I really like that he has the science type background, but also puts it literally into play on his own land. Mm hmm. You know, that takes it to another level for me because now I'm talking to a landowner slash science hat type person. And that's a that's a good combo. So he's seeing what's really working on his own property and had huge success on the proving grounds and then has sold that. And now is, you know, going to do it again on the proving grounds, too. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Pretty impressive. So anyway, I'm glad he took the time to talk with us. Look forward to working with him more in the future and, you know, hopefully get him back on the show and hope you guys enjoyed that and, you know, glean some knowledge. You know, if nothing else, there's a lot of cool history stuff in there that he shared that I had never heard of, like the cows in Texas are what brought the scrub oaks and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that mesquite, crazy? I guess. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Well, you know, we've got many more just awesome episodes leading up to turkey season and because Cameron and I banked several interviews when we took a few weeks off this past summer. We've got some awesome episodes coming up during turkey season as well. So, you guys, if you are just coming back to us after your deer season ended and you're just now starting to think about turkeys again, you're in for a treat. We're we're bringing it. So, be sure you listen in every week. Yeah, th- this year, instead of us missing weeks because we're hunting, those weeks are now going to be some of the best weeks because we've banked some great podcasts. No joke. Yeah. So, yeah. 
we're so, looking forward to it. And, you know, as always, if you guys want to support the show, go to the show notes. You can become a Patreon member down there. Or if you want to get some merchandise, we're working on getting our store going with Shopify. There'll be a link in the show notes for that. We have some merchandise, coffee cups, hats, T-shirts, hoodies, things like that. We don't have anything in camo yet. We're, we're maybe have something working on that. And we will be launching our diaphragm turkey calls very soon on Shopify. Very soon. So those are going to be there soon. We'll have some sound files and stuff for you guys to hear. Those are going to be absolute pure turkey, pure death on some turkeys this spring. So y'all will hopefully be hearing some live audio of those calls in use this spring, too, when we bring our live hunt shows. Well, but, they may even hear some of that when you and I get back from Tejas. They're going to hear some of that when they get back from Tejas. Uh-huh. Open. It's going to happen. So we're, we will be in Texas very soon, but we'll be in Nashville, like I said, Friday and Saturday. So favor of the week. You know, if you're going to Nashville, make sure you try to find us. We we will not have a booth per se. We always like to roam. So get in contact over social media, text, email, however you can get in contact with us and let us know you're there and you know, we'll try to link up with you. We love love talking to our listeners. Absolutely. It is yeah. it is always a blast. And heck you may end up getting interviewed, so <laughs> All right. I like the sound of that. We all we always have a microphone ready to go if you start saying something interesting. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, very cool. Yeah, there's the favor of the week. You want to wrap us up? Yeah, man. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. We know that you have choices. We appreciate you spending your time with us. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. As the Costa Ricans say, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on Hunting Afternoon Birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.